This morning is part three of a little sermon mini-series entitled, Putting Some Pop in Your Prayer Life. Last week was not live streamed, but I did email out a link to the audio from last Sunday's two sermons. So uh, if you were not able to be with us last week and did not see the live stream, uh, hopefully you had an opportunity to go back and at least hear the audio that kind of set up this uh, mini-series or the first couple of sermons therefrom. As we discussed last week, putting some pop in your prayer life, we're not talking about a drink, obviously. We are talking about POP used as an acronym and we will see that momentarily. I will tell you that in these sermons, there is some overlap because it's hard to just cut it right off and, and be at the end of a certain thought and then other thoughts strike me through the week. So at any rate, there is some overlap. Last Sunday's two lessons, we took a look at the priority of prayer, the passion of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the peace of prayer, the power of prayer, and we wound up with the piety of prayer, and certainly you can see where the POP comes from. The place I'd like to begin this morning is with a continued discussion of the piety of prayer because it sets up the next three or four subjects after that so well. So I want to continue on talking about the one we ended with, pop number six, the piety of prayer. Piety could be defined as extreme reverence for God based on a true recognition of God. Extreme reverence for God based on a true recognition of God. True recognition of who God is and all of his, his holiness and, and his power and his righteousness and his awesomeness. It is that kind of recognition of God, a true recognition of who God is, that makes the demons believe and shudder. And shudder. The demons shudder because they know exactly who God is. They know him, about him. They know of his power. They know not only who he is in reality, but they know what he is going to do to them, what he can and is going to do to them at the end of time. Something which neither they, their master Satan, nor anybody can do anything about. They are doomed and they know it because of the awesomeness of God. They understand his power. And Satan does not have one single solitary thing he can do about it, such as the awesomeness of God's power. We note this in Matthew 8, 28 and 9, and Mark 5, 1 through 13. So when we come face to face, when we come face, to, and I thought about this before I got up there to, to lead that prayer and the word overwhelmed came to mind. When we come face to face with the full force, the infinite force, of who God really truly is. Not just sit in a building and do what we've always done because we've done it that way, but when we really lock in and lock on to the power and the splendor of God, who he is, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And we're not praying to the ceiling. We're not praying to the ceiling fans. We are talking to the God and creator of the universe. The one who has the right to destroy every ungodly, sinful being there ever was. 
and yet chooses to love us, love us even when we mess up, love us even though we are messed up in comparison to him. When we understand who he is, our reaction should be much like Isaiah's. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah got a glimpse of, of who God was, and, and he had this reverence for God, this, this piety, this extreme reverence for God based on a true recognition of who he is. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is just filled with the glory of God. And the posts on the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah said, I can't be here. I don't deserve to be here. I see who God is, and I understand who I am. And he was petrified. Then one of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Do you see that? Do you see in that the picture of the coming Christ? He said, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I can't be here in God's presence. But God took care of his sin. God atoned for, as it were, in, in this verse. God, and, and I realize that Jesus took care of all the sin on the cross. I understand that. Of, of, of the Old Testament folks, I understand that and knew. But the picture you get here is that God is the one who would take away that iniquity, who would reseal that relationship. He took it away from Isaiah, so Isaiah was able to be there. And he says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah was so overwhelmed with, the, with God's presence, but he knew he, he was sinful and he couldn't be there. And God took care of that. This picture is that God was taking care of that. And so when the question's asked, hey, who's gonna go? I says, I'll go after what just happened to me, I'll go. It is that recognition, such as Isaiah did here in the first few verses of chapter six, that leads us to have a very humble, reverent, pious approach and submission to God in everything we do, and especially our prayers, especially our prayers. This is an attitude and an approach to God that Peter wrote about when he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, be clothed with humility. We cannot approach God without recognizing who he is, and that should break us, that should humble us. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. We sing that song, Humble Yourself Beside the Lord. I love that song, love the echo, but there's, there's so much to it. It's not just a neat song we sing at camp or in worship. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and let him 
lift us up, just like he lifted Isaiah up. Why? Why can we cast all of our cares on him? Because he loves us and he can handle it. Because he cares for you, Peter says. Even Jesus, even Jesus had that approach to God. Did you know that in prayer? This reverent, humble recognition of who God was and where God was. Jesus, Jesus, God in the flesh, had that same approach when he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, in verse 9. What we typically call the Lord's Prayer, all the prayers, I know you've heard me say this before, all the prayers the Lord prayed were the Lord's Prayer, but that's what we typically call it. But what, what's his first few words in that prayer? Our Father, who is where? In heaven. Very first thing he does is points out where God is. God is not on earth as he is in heaven, I mean God in the flesh, he, Jesus, is here, but he, he shows this reverence for God in heaven. And what's the next words of that prayer? Hallowed or holy, depending on your translation. Holy is your name. Very first thing Jesus does is establishes who God is in reverence and holiness, where he is, what he is. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus said. And that's how he taught his disciples to pray. Listen, if we don't first recognize in our prayers who God is, then maybe we need to rethink how we start. Jesus' own reverent submission, his own piety, his own humility or godly fear, depending on your translation, is the reason his prayers were heard. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. That's why his prayers were heard. It was Jesus' own personal piety or submission or godly fear that caused him to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2 and verse 8. That is why he was heard, Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Listen, we understand from 2 Chronicles 15, 1 through 15, and, and several other passages that those people who do not truly seek God do not truly find him. If you want to find him, you've got to seek him. Only those who seek him find him. Similarly, those who do not respect him enough to humble themselves before and listen to and obey him should not realistically expect that he is going to listen to and honor them and what they have to say to him in prayer. Listen, if you want God to listen to you, you need to listen to God. If we tell God he ain't worth listening to, God's not going to hear our prayers. And I, I don't mean to sound harsh. I do mean to sound biblical. And matter of fact, Proverbs 28 and verse 9 says, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Want God to hear us, we've got to hear God. Another text that tells us the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 15. God lets his people know that he knows that they ain't listening. He lets them know in no uncertain terms, I know you ain't listening. Not only does he then go on to say that he's going to cast them out of his sight because they weren't listening, but he tells Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, don't you even pray for him because even if you pray to me for those people, I ain't going to hear your prayers either. Even righteous Jeremiah. That is in verse 16 of Jeremiah 7, where it says, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. 
Later on in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, verse 1, God adds Moses and Samuel to the mix. He said, look, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, I still wouldn't hear them either. Listen, you want to you get an Old Testament Hall of Fame going, there's, there's three pretty good names to get started with, right? Jeremiah, Moses, I mean, really? Yes, and Samuel, yeah. So here's the thing. If God wasn't going to listen to those three men's prayers on behalf of these individuals that weren't listening to him, he certainly wasn't going to listen to their prayers either, and he says so. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 and following, he said, I'm not, even though you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm not going to listen. Why? Because they weren't listening to God. Isaiah 3, 8 says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Listen to this defying his glorious presence. Isaiah 3 and verse 8 in one version says that. They had stumbled and fallen. Their speech and deeds were against the Lord because they defied his presence. Is there anything in the New Testament that sounds even remotely like that? Can we defy the Lord's presence? Well, it sounds like it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Turn over there. Defy the Lord's presence when we don't come to him as reverently as we should, knowing who he is. Ephesians 4, 29 through 31 reads as follows. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Can we grieve God's Holy Spirit within us? Yes. Very much like defying his presence, we can defy the presence of God's Spirit within us. When the words or the speech that comes out of our mouth as we talk to or about others is either continuously corrupt or bitter or angry or clamorous or evil or ungodly, then we grieve or we defy the glorious presence of God's Holy Spirit. And if we do that and then we turn around and pray out of that same mouth to God, our speech is polluted. And our prayers may very well fall on deaf ears. And if you don't believe that, try reading James 3, 3 through 18 later on, or Luke 18, 9 through 14. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that when there's good stuff coming out of our mouth about others, God hears our prayers. God wants to hear our prayers. God desperately wants to hear our prayers. When, when the words and actions coming out of our mouths and lives are good and positive and pious and reverence, and reverent, then our prayers before God are honored, listened to, respected. We see this in 1 Peter. See, both flip sides of that are true. 1 Peter 3, look at verses 8 through 12. God doesn't just tell us how not to have our prayers heard. God lovingly tells us exactly how to have every word heard. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love 
as brothers, be tender-hearted. You know the problem with tender-hearted people? There's a problem with tender-hearted people. You know what it is? They get their hearts broke a lot. You know what God says? Be tender-hearted anyway. Love his brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. This is God's whole plan here. This is what you were called to. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I spent all that time on the piety of prayer, on recognizing who God is. Again, as I said earlier, on this pot number six, because it sets up so well the next few. Sets them up beautifully, including pot number seven, the privilege of prayer. Prayer is a privilege. It's not a right, there's a difference. It's a privilege. You see, it's only when we really, truly, reverently recognize who God really is, when we understand how separate from sinners he is, when we understand his righteousness and holiness compared to our lack thereof, when we understand that great chasm that, that sin caused, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, between us and him and, and, and all of his holiness and, and, and who he really, really, truly is, that we can fully appreciate what a privilege it is to talk to him. Have you ever known somebody who, I don't know, maybe was in a great position of power, and you know, you felt when you talked to them, maybe, maybe your boss, maybe the person that owns your company, maybe whatever, uh, senator, congressperson, and you felt like even if you talked to them, nobody would care? You ever felt like kind of the low man on the pole, right? What we need to understand is, is we are so far down on the pole when it comes to God that it is an absolute privilege to be able to talk to him and know he hears us. What a privilege to know he hears our prayers. Makes that, that song, Sweet Hour of Prayer, even sweeter. To know that he hears, and brethren, we can know that he hears, we, we can. God wants you to know that he hears you. In John chapter 14, if you would turn there, I just want to point out a few verses. I'm not going to take a lot of time on them. We've covered these pretty well at length in the adult class, but we can know that prayer is a privilege, and it's a privilege to know he hears us. John 14, beginning at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. In his name means by his authority, through his will. That doesn't mean we're going to get everything that we ask for, but we're going to get everything that we ask for that is in accordance with his will and asked for by his authority. But we can only ask by his authority if we have placed ourselves under his authority. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
there's a reason that immediately follows. If, if we're not going to place ourselves under his authority, then how would we expect to be able to pray through his authority? We can't keep his commandments or live under the, his authority if we don't learn them and know them and subject ourselves to them. John 15, 14 through 16 tells us that. And then 1 John chapter 5, 14 through 15 says this, and this is beautiful. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him. This is the confidence we have. It's not what we hope for, this confidence we have. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How much clearer can that be? And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. What a privilege that confidence is. You have confidence in certain things. You have confidence maybe in certain people. You ever had confidence in somebody and they've let you down? We can have absolute confidence in God that if we're asking according to his will, he hears us. It is a privilege to know <clears throat> that by his authority and our submission to it, our prayers, our prayers reach the very throne room of God. Talk about not praying to the ceiling or the fan. Our prayers reach the very throne room, all because of Jesus, all because of Jesus' blood, all because he makes us righteous and worthy to be there. Otherwise, our prayers would not land there. It is not through some earthly hierarchy that our prayers reach the Father. It is through Jesus Christ, who is seated the very right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all authority, principality, power, might, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's where Jesus is, and it's Jesus who opens up that portal for our prayers to be there. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. It is Jesus who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. We know this. And it is his spirit within us that helps us in our weaknesses, making intercession for us which cannot be uttered, Romans 8, 26. I want you to turn to me to the book of Revelation for just a minute. I want you to take a look at this picture that the Apostle John got when the saints were being persecuted and killed and martyred and all of those things and John was on the Isle of Patmos. God sent him this picture book, if you will. Sent him this vision, what we call the Revelation. And <clears throat> as we look at some of these snapshots God was trying to encourage him in those first century saints. I want you to look at the prayers. In Revelation chapter 8, what an incredible privilege of prayer to know that they ascend to the very throne room of God. Revelation 8, verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Our prayers, because of Christ, because of that righteousness we have, we have this picture here. Do you see where the prayers ended up? Before God, in his presence. 
What a privilege that is. And notice the result, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunders, lightnings, and an earthquake. Do you understand what that means? The picture that John is being given is, yes, our prayers come up. Their prayers there come up. But the saints' prayers come up before God Almighty. And then this angel, he takes this, this censer, filled with fire from the altar, threw it to the earth. Fire from the altar of God, power from the presence of God, dynamite from the storehouse of God, in answer to the saints' prayers, is cast to the earth. That's an answer to their prayers. There's this, there's this reaction of God, this response, that, that God's unleashing his storehouse of power in response to those prayers is, is the picture that we are given. Do we understand what a privilege, pr people privilege, uh, prayer is not just, I'm getting all tongue-tied here, prayer is not just something that we stand up here 30 seconds and do or do before a meal. It is an awesome privilege of God for our prayers to go before the very throne of Almighty God himself. What a privilege we have. Mm. But, but it is a privilege, not a right. You know the difference, right? It is a privilege but like all privileges, it can be revoked or suspended by an unrighteous, impious, irreverent, disobedient, or rebellious lifestyle. It is a privilege which can be suspended or revoked by God if we are not listening to him. Brethren, we must make sure that our lifestyles and actions are never those that would cause God to suspend that privilege. In other words, not to hear us because we're not hearing him. We can't afford that privilege revocation. That brings us to pot number eight. The persistence or perseverance, either one. The persistence or perseverance of prayer. Turn to me to Luke 18. Look at the first eight verses of Luke 18 as we talk about the persistence or perseverance of prayer. I couldn't decide which to call it, and I didn't want to give you two pops, so we'll just go with the same thing. Luke 18, the persistence of prayer. Then he spoke a parable, Luke 18 and verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. What does that tell you? That tells you that some people are going to lose heart when they're praying and they don't see God immediately respond. There's going to be people that lose heart. And so Jesus is encouraging them. He's saying, you always ought to pray and not lose heart. And, and he goes on to say this by way of illustration. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me and my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own, who will, his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, don't get the wrong idea here. It's not saying that you wear God out with your prayers. That's not the point. Remember, God is just. This man is unjust. There's a comparison going on here in Jesus' teaching. All he's letting you know is, hey, look, if the unjust, who doesn't think anything about God or doesn't care for man, if the unjust 
will give way eventually, how much more so and more quickly will God? Remember Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, where Jesus said, if a, man asks, if a man's son asks for fish, you won't give him a stone, will he? The point is, is that God is always just and righteous. So if we as human fathers do the best we can, how much more so will God do? That's the contrast in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. It's the same thing here. If the unrighteous judge would eventually give in, how much more will the just judge respond when we show him that we're serious about what we want? That's the point Jesus is making. Listen. We were able to be with uh, Jar and Katie and, and Hannah yesterday for a bit. And there was one point, and I don't even remember now what it was, but Hannah had mentioned something. And her dad says, maybe she'll forget. Okay, you know what? You prove how much you really want something by how much you're supposed to stay focused on it. You know what, if she never brought it up again, probably wouldn't have got it. Why, because I don't love my granddaughter or he don't, no. But how serious was she? How often do kids ask for things and they're not all that serious? How often do we prove to God we're not that serious about something because we ask him for something once, then we just say, well, he's not gonna respond, so I'll let it go. Let God know you're serious. Can we pray to God too much? Can we pray to God too much? Nope. Let him know, be relentless, be persistent, persevere. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Verse 16 is rejoice always. Verse 17 is pray without ceasing. Verse 18 is in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray continually. Pot number nine is a close relative to pot number eight. Pot number nine is the patience of prayer. It's, it's very closely related to persistence and perseverance. Number nine, the patience of prayer. Turn to me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. The patience of prayer. We're gonna read a few excerpts beginning in verse five. Verses five through nine. patience of prayer. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Here we go. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Can we when we pray to God and there's something serious on our hearts and we pray to God and he does not automatically, immediately, right there in that moment respond, can we find rest in him still while we're waiting, can we? Yeah. Why? Because we know where our prayer went. We know who God is. We know he's got it. And so we can rest in him, and that's the point. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. <laughs> How many times do we need to read that to ourselves every day? Do not fret. It only causes harm. 
For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, they shall inherit the earth. Move to verse 34. Verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Wait on the Lord. Keep his way. Even when you have committed your way to him, when you are praying to him, this is the patience of prayer. And finally, verses 39 and 40, as he wraps up this psalm, look what he says. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. We're all going to have troubles. There's going to be times we're going to have to wait on the Lord. He said, you can. Trust me. Be patient. Hang in there. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. Hey, what do you suppose God would have said if he'd wanted to say, hey, the Lord shall help them? He probably would have said, the Lord shall help them. It's pretty simple, isn't it? And he shall deliver them. That's what it says. That's why we can rest in him, because we know he's got it. And shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Why will he save them? Because they trust in him. How do we know they trust in him? Because they prayed to him, they gave it to him, they continued to pray for him, even when they didn't see results, and they kept proving that even though they didn't see results, they were walking by faith and not by sight, and they trusted him, therefore he saves them. They know he's got it. They know he's going to deal with it. The patience of prayer proves our trust. Waiting upon the Lord. Sometimes we need to pray to God, then wait. Let me ask you a question. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, he said, Father, please forgive them for they know not what they do. You remember that prayer? Was that answered that day? Was it answered the next day? About 40 something days later, the way was opened up so they could accept forgiveness, right? Had to wait a month and a half. Now, they couldn't be forgiven of their sins until Acts chapter 2. But Jesus prayed, Father, please forgive them. Did he know that would be taken care of? Did he trust his father? He was going to go through some terrible things between the time that prayer was prayed and that prayer was answered. Jesus was going to go through the cross of Calvary, the worst incredible thing that he had ever been through. Separation from, but he still trusted his father with it and he knew it would be taken care of. That's faith, that's trust, that's patience of prayer. And finally, for this morning, pop number 10, the protection of prayer. The protection of prayer. Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings. And I know that even with this series, we have not, 2 Kings 19, I know that we cannot and have not touched on probably even half the verses on prayer that we could, and I realize that all the pieces have to be put together, but at the same time, this doesn't mean as we look at this example, in other words, that, that God's going to respond this way every time we must ask according to his will, and there's a lot of other dynamics, but, but I want you to see at least in this case the protection of prayer. In 2 Kings 18, there's the account of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And Sennacherib was laying waste to everybody. He was laying waste to kings and nations and every people he came up against. And he's going to come up against Jerusalem. 
He's going to come up against righteous king Hezekiah. Hezekiah is outnumbered, infinitely outnumbered. King Hezekiah gets mocked, teased, taunted. Sennacherib tries to get King Hezekiah to surrender. And as I said, Hezekiah is hopelessly outnumbered. He's going to go down just like every other group if he relies on himself. 2 Kings chapter 19, look what happens. 18, I realize, is the account of Sennacherib, etc., moving on. But 19, 2 Kings 19, beginning at verse 10, look what it says. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. In other words, Sennacherib sending a messenger saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, <laughs> and should you be delivered? And so he's taunting Hezekiah, hey, look, are you out of your mind? Look at what's happened to everybody else. Don't let your God deceive you and tell you you're going to be okay. You're not going to be okay. You're going down. Have the gods of the nations, verse 12, delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shephervaim, Hena and Iva? He said, they're all done. He said, you're going to be just like them. You are going to be toast as bad as they are. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Notice this. At this point, it doesn't say he feared. It doesn't say he went to get his armies all amassed. That isn't where he went. Where did he go? He went to the house of the Lord. He's, he's got this overwhelming, outnumbered, totally destructive force coming at him. And where does he go? Hezekiah went to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Can't you just, can't you just see him just taking his, his paperwork in the house of the Lord and just kind of... Okay, Lord, this is what he said. What you gonna do about it? I'm sure it was a lot more humble than that, or I believe it was. But, but look at the text here, look at what it says. He spread it before the Lord, verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. What's he doing there? He's recognizing the majesty, the power, and the glory of his God. He is recognizing he is being pious and reverent. He is doing the same thing Jesus did when Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven. He's separating God apart and saying, I know who you are. You are God. Sometimes you think in our prayers it might help us when we start out to put that right out there on the table. Father in heaven, you are God. Here's my issue. That's what he's doing. You are God. You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you've made heavens and earth. You have made heaven and earth. Establishes who he's talking to. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. He's not denying. He said, yeah, that's exactly what's happened. He has obliterated them. 
For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed him, destroyed them. Notice what he's doing here? He's still recognizing who God is. He said, look, yeah, of course they did that, because that's just idols. But I know who you are, God. They can do all this to them, but they can't do this to you. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. That is one of the most beautiful prayers, as far as I'm concerned, in the Old Testament. He lays it right out there. Verse 20. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Do you remember last week when I talked about prayer, I said, how come is it, in the introduction, I said, how come is it sometimes we'll, we'll do everything we can, we'll exhaust every option we have, we'll try everything we know to do, and then when nothing works, we'll say, well, I guess all we can do now is pray about it. Remember that? Newsflash, all you could do before you started all this was pray about it anyway because you don't have any control over it. Why don't we start with prayer? Why don't we start there? Why do we always want to push the chain uphill? Why do we always want to put the horse behind the wagon and have him push it? Why do we do that? Start with prayer. It was all you could have done anyway. You can't fix the problem. God can. That's what, that's what Hezekiah did. And God says, hey, because you prayed to me, I've heard. You didn't go rattle your sabers and get the army together and, and finding out how many shields you had. You came to me, and because you did that, I've heard you. You know what happens? Great story. Look at verses 35 through 37. It came to pass, well, it's great if you're not one of Sennacherib's men anyway. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. 185,000. What's the population of Shoto? About 3,300? 3,000? 185,000. What's the population of Mays County? About 44,000? 185,000 in one night. God is serious. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away. I'm guessing he probably did. I'm guessing he got out of there about as fast as he could, wouldn't you? 185,000 of you warriors are breathing no more. If I'm Sennacherib, I'm scared to death. He went away, returned home, remained at Nineveh. It came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his own sons, and I added the word own, his own sons, Adremelech and Sherezer struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Ezer Haddon, his son, reigned in his place. Did God take care of it? Did God take care of it better than Hezekiah could? Why? Because the first thing Hezekiah did was he prayed. And he admitted who God was. And he confessed who God was. And he, he wasn't praying to the ceiling, and he knew it. And so he had the protection of prayer. I don't know what this series may be doing for you, but I hope 
that it really rekindles my prayer life as I focus in more on priority and the passion and the purpose and the peace and the power and the piety and the privilege and the persistence, the patience and protection of prayer. Because I will confess to you, my prayer life is not what it should be. And I want it better. I really do. I'm not just saying that. I, I truly do. And this is helping me to focus, and I hope it helps you as well. And I hope you're here next Sunday as we conclude this series. I don't know yet if it's going to be just one lesson or two. We'll see. But I want to close this morning with this thought. Prayer is incredible. Amen? Prayer is awesome. But for all of these examples that we see and all of this reading that we do and all of this series that we cover in the entire New Testament, you know something? You know the one thing that prayer doesn't have the power to do? Yes, he's saying. Good. Prayer does not have the power to save your soul. Can't do it. We never see anybody in the New Testament saved by saying a prayer. It's not there. Prayer won't do that. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. Only the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive your sins. And, by the way, once your sins are forgiven and the relationship with God is restored and you are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then your prayers can be heard by God because there's no sin keeping them apart. But it takes the blood of Christ to do that. Saul of Tarsus prayed over the course of three days in Acts 9, 9 through 11, but that wasn't enough to save him, wasn't enough to forgive his sins. Because we know Ananias came to, his, came to him later in Acts 22 and verse 16 and said, now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Saul of Tarsus at that point wasn't saved prior to his baptism because he still had his sins even though he prayed over three days but when he heard that instruction he was pious enough humble enough and reverent enough recognizing who God was that he obeyed it he did what God told him to do and and if we do what God tells us to do then God will do what he told us he would do in reference to our having done what he told us to do. I got that right. God says, repent and be baptized. That's your part. And he'll forgive your sins, wash them away. That's his part. We keep our end, he'll keep his end. Then our prayers reach the throne of God. This morning, you need to be baptized into Christ. You need your sins forgiven. You need to wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. It's not done in prayer. Acts 22, 16 says it's done when you are baptized. Or if you're here this morning and you need more peace or power, piety, patience, protection, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much and will pray for you to have those things in your life if you're struggling. This morning, if you have a need that we can help with in either of those ways, don't just let us sing a song and then you go out that door still in need. Come this way before you go that way as we stand and sing. <laughs>